today we are going to be talking about Jean-Jacques Rousseau. We are going to be talking about Alexis de Tocqueville, Miller J. Erickson, Shezwath Miwosh, others. But we're also going to be talking about why you can't take the T out of LGB, and we're going to be talking about the nature of marriage, the nature of man, and the philosophical waters that Christianity has unknowingly been swimming in, and the sharks that are nibbling at them as a result. Stay tuned for more Solomon's Corner. You are listening to the Solomon's Corner Book Club. If you are looking for a place to read and grow your intellectual life, welcome. Welcome to the Solomon's Corner Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Roberts. This is the book club. We try to do this every single week. We are going through Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and if you are reading along with us, we really appreciate it. Obviously, we're going to get into the announcements here, and uh, also we're launching this on YouTube. So this is our first YouTube video. So hello, everybody out there. And for those that don't know me, my name is Daniel Roberts. I'm the host of Solomon's Corner Podcast. We do stuff for people who want to live the intellectual life based on this book right here. Boom. There you go. That's why we started, is to help people live out this thing. We're not necessarily Catholic, but you don't necessarily have to be in order to enjoy this book. He was, though. Anyway, so today we're going to be talking about this is a book club episode. For those that don't know, we are going through The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman. And we got a little bit behind because we have been doing e-store stuff. So um, that is coming along really well. Some of you have access to it as the beta test group and would really appreciate your feedback. I've already found some things that you guys may or may not have noticed, like... uh, dimensions not being on our products so we got to get that sorted out but anyway our hope is to launch in 2023 so that you can buy some of our custom handmade pens like this one here which is already spoken for by the way and uh, we give these out to our guests so Brian Huffling Dr. Huffling who came on the show last week his is about to go out because we finally got our shipping containers and this is his his is going to go out but once that e-store drops, you will also be able to buy these pens, handmade by yours truly. Um, but yeah, stay tuned for more. If you want to get the latest on that, you can go to our Twitter page, at SolomonsCorner.com, or you can follow me, at Dan on Twitter, and you'll be able to get the notification of when our store drops. Otherwise, subscribe to the book club, SolomonsCorner.com forward slash book club. Go there, you can subscribe. We are doing a giveaway as well. I know I've got a lot of announcements today, but we've kind of been behind. But we're giving away 10 copies of this, and we are going to include a custom pen that I have made. So it'll probably be a fountain pen or a rollerball. Not really sure which one. Let me know in the comments below if you watch this video if I should throw a comment or throw a fountain pen or throw a rollerball. We've got 10 of these bad boys coming. I just got the notification today. So make sure you're on our book club newsletter to be entered into draw to for the drawing for those. We are going to start on chapter two, and we're going to go through chapter three. The last book episode that we did was on the introduction in chapter one, and we're not going to bother getting the rest of you guys caught up. I'm just kidding. But the, uh, the gist of this is essentially uh, Dr. Truman is going through, and he's showing the historical progress of intellectual thought that led to this sexual revolution that we're in, not just from the perspective of those who are participating in the sexual revolution, but also those who are complying with it. You know, the the people who have decided that it's okay to put pronouns in bios, people who think that, you know, gender dysphoria 
is just something we need to accommodate? How did we go from saying, you know, marriage is between a man and a woman to saying kids may need puberty blockers and even have transition surgeries and have even a percentage of the culture think that that is okay, let alone leaders and elites doing uh, just that. So part two, or chapter two, is where he's going, is titled Reimagining Culture. And in this uh, section, he's going to go through and he's going to talk about three worlds. He's going to talk about the first world, second world, and the third world. And these are not to be considered in economic terms. So when he says third world, so when he says the third world, what he's trying to say is he's talking about the fact that in the uh, moral order of development of countries, you have a first world where you have basically the pantheon of the gods. These are the elements that you punt to authority, basically. And so you have a pantheon. Then the next one is not characterized by a polytheistic religion, but a monotheistic one, most likely Christianity. And so then the, the third one is when these uh, become totally preferential. The morality is no longer grounded in something transcendent or in, in something like fate, but it's grounded in your preference because fate and uh, the divine are no longer part of the social fabric that you are trying to, uh, to, to live in. And so the third world is actually the uh, most atheistic in this sense, so it's not necessarily a country that doesn't have any economic privilege or any economic development. It could be a very highly developed society like ours, uh, in which he's going to make the case that we're moving into a third world um, context, according to the author that he is, he is uh, discussing, which I believe is rife. Yeah, rife. So got my notes here. So as he sets this up, uh, he, he makes this claim here that these third worlds are anti-historical, which if you've been following along on the podcast, we went through Sejwash Milos's book, which I'm going to cover a quote here in a minute. But one of the things that he talks about in, in The Captive Mind is technology and how it uh, undermines Christian thought. And, and Dr. Truman is going to say something similar here on page 93, which, Lindsay, we don't have a quote for this one. I forgot to give it to you. But says, this anti-historical tendency has numerous causes, and the anti-historical tendency is the third world uh, that he's referring to. In terms of the broad social imaginary, I'm reading from Truman here, this book right there, boom, boom. The an this anti-historical tendency has numerous causes. In terms of the broad social imaginary, it is clear that technology plays a role in cultivating an attitude that sees the past as inferior to the present and the present as inferior to that which is to come. After all, who wants to see a world with no proper sewage systems in place and no aesthetics? This attitude also connects to the destabilizing effects of consumerism and capitalism. Marx and Engels noted in the Communist Manifesto that the capitalism of the Industrial Revolution depended on the constant recreation of markets, and today we witness the continuation of that in, say, the strategies of a company such as Apple, with their clever production of new iPhone models and their in nurturing of dissatisfaction with the old and desire for the new on which their marketing depends. So technology is something that we take for granted, and it's something that people before us, like Shezwath Miwosh, noticed that technology was changing the way that we actually interacted with the world and also was a tool by communists to undermine people's faith. 
and to move them towards the political state. And so not only was it Shezwath Milosh, but Hannah Arendt also said similar things in The Human Condition. Also C.S. Lewis in Abolition of Man. So there is this trend across this, this same time frame in the you know 1930s, well, really 1940s, 1950s, where thinkers are actually coming to the conclusion that technology is actually subverting our understanding of human nature and the value of the past. And they all come up with various reasons, but they all put the emphasis on technology. And including in our own present time, Yuval Noah Harari in his book, Homo Deus. We did a seminar on this. Um, a lot of people came. It was pretty awesome. And here he makes the same argument, but towards transhumanism, that we would actually become silicon gods. Uh, those are his words, not mine, and he's not messing around. The basis for this quote that Truman has on the fact that technology plays a role in cultivating an attitude that sees the past as inferior is also echoed in Miwosh, and I think it's particularly relevant for our time, this quote, and you can pull it up, Lindsay, because in this quote, he's talking about how technology specifically subverts the church in light of the communist uh, oppression on the, uh, on the culture to try and get the church to become a political tool. So Szezwath Miłosz, who was in Poland, and he survived the communist and Nazi occupations of Poland. So you think you got a bad in America, just imagine if you had the Nazis one day and then you had Soviet Russia the next. He says of the Christian church and technology, the masses in highly industrialized countries like England, the United States, or France are largely de-Christianized. Technology and the way of life it produces undermines Christianity far more effectively than do violent measures. The erosion of religious beliefs is also taking place in Central and Eastern Europe. There, the core of the problem is to avoid galvanizing the forces of Christianity by some careless misstep. So the communists cannot make a misstep. And now he's going to explain what that would be. It would be an act of unforgivable carelessness, for example, if the communists close the churches suddenly and prohibit all religious practice. Instead, one should try to split the church in two. Part of the clergy must be compromised as reactionaries and foreign agents. When he says reactionaries, he's talking about people who don't go along with the Marxism. A rather easy task, given the utterly conservative mentality of many priests. The other part must be bound to the state as closely as the Orthodox Church is in Russia, so that it becomes a tool of the government, a completely submissive church, one that may on occasion collaborate with the security police, loses authority in the eyes of the pious. Such a church can be preserved for decades until the moment when it dies a natural death due to a lack of adherence, end quote. And that is in this book right here. So pick that one up too. We also did a podcast on that whole thing and covered all those quotes in detail. How it's relevant to Truman is that technology is going to accelerate the ideas present in a society. And that's what he's saying here, is that the technology leads one to basically question the past. Because obviously, we have new technology all the time, and nobody wants to play an Atari 600, or 6000, or whatever it was. Obviously, I'm dating myself because I can't remember, so that means all the real gamers are saying, ah, he's a young guy, because he doesn't know what it is. But the point is that technology, as it moves forward, it habituates human beings to feel like the past is always inferior. In other words, 
it bakes in a kind of chronological snobbery into the behavior of the human being. And so if you don't have anything to ground you to the past, then you will basically be like a, a leaf on the wind, just kind of cast out onto the open air and have no idea where you're going. And you're going to basically be just guided by the winds of technology. So if you have to work all day in VR, you're like, well, that's not doing anything to me. Probably isn't doing anything. And anything outside of that might actually start to sound uh, archaic or old. So technology acts as a catalyst. Also, when we think about technology, consider things like contraceptives or the sexual industry that came into being with the eugenics movement or with Planned Parenthood, which, you know, distinction without a difference there. But the point being that technology was a big part of the sexual revolution, starting with contraception, because what it said, and as we'll read in Truman, was that we can actually mold human nature. We can actually use drugs to make us into a different kind of woman, if you consider contraceptives. If you look at what the transgender surgery uh, methods are saying, they are saying we can change you even at your gender level, not just your function, but your actual anatomy. So when Miwo says this about technology, you have to understand that there are other thinkers as well, like Hannah Arendt and C.S. Lewis, who are drawing the same connection, that technology is subverting not just our perception of the past, but also our question, our, our sense of what it means to be human. And this is a huge part of the, the sexual revolution, as you read in Dr. Truman's book, that as you're going through, you're going to see that technology is part of this. He's not going to emphasize it as much, but it definitely acts as a catalyst. And this is something that is expressed across cultures, across thinkers, and across genders, because you got a girl in there, who saw, and they're all different countries too. You got the UK, Poland, and a German in there who all in some way are Western thinkers that say, yep, technology is changing our perception of our nature. Now, you combine that with some philosophical, uh, what would you call it? Philosophical mutations, and you've got a catalyst that is going to accelerate our revolution into God knows where, which we know now because it's happening, but... At the time, you wouldn't have been able to necessarily predict this. So we continue on, and we are going to get into the, on page 82, we're going to look at this quote from Carl Truman about sexuality. And so one of the things that I want to do is, I have, I have a, a graduate degree in philosophy, I'm not a PhD or anything crazy like that, but one of the things I want to try and do with this channel is help people get a grasp of, of terms that they may not understand and understand the implications of what those terms are and how they apply into the cultural context we have. So in this particular quote on page 84, he's talking about gay marriage and he's talking about the traditional view of marriage and why they're diverting. So I'm going to read this quote to you, and then we're going to do a little bit of a deep dive on secondary and primary purpose, act and potency, and why you can't separate the T from the LGB. Okay, so the quote is, and there we go. In Christian tradition, in Christian tradition embodies, for example, in the liturgy of the Book of Common Prayer, that's the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, marriage had a threefold purpose, lifelong companionship, mutual sexual satisfaction, and procreation, which is kind of funny because, you know, they, 
the way that they always phrase this in the traditional natural law sense is it's like, and you got the product, which will change your life forever for the good, by the way. But yep, we got to tack it on there. Anyway, gay marriage actually demands a fundamental revision of the ends of marriage. And when he says ends there, he's talking about telos or he's talking about purpose. So telos, purpose, ends, goal, all of those things mean the same thing. What is a thing exist for? Why is it here? So gay marriage actually demands a fundamental revision of the purpose of marriage is how that could be read. And therefore of the essence of marriage or the nature of marriage. The arguments for gay marriage rest on a view that ascribes a different end, a different telos to marriage because it requires the rejection of the notion that marriage must be the proper context and indeed the necessary moral prerequisite for conception. So let's talk about natures, telos, and potency, okay? So the nature of a thing makes it what it is, and the nature tells us what its purpose is. So the easiest way to talk about natures whenever you're dealing with it for the first time is to not start with natural things because natural things are actually harder to figure out in a lot of ways. Just from the pure, you don't even necessarily have to agree with this, but just from a purely metaphysical analysis, it's easier to determine what the nature of a man-made object is than it is to understand a biological or natural occurring object because they can have so many different telos or purposes. Doesn't mean you can't figure it out. It just means that for beginners, it's easier to start with man-made objects. So for example, this cup right here says, keep thinking, it's beautiful. Yes, this will be on our e-store, Solomon's Corner. So this was obviously made to drink out of. It's a, It's got a handle. We know that the nature of this thing is to hold fluid or some sort of content. We know that, for example, a computer, its primary purpose, its nature is to compute, right? That is what it does. That's the nature of the thing. Now, you could take a computer and you could turn it into a blunt object because it has that kind of potential. But that does not mean that its potential is in line with its nature. For example, your eye has the ability to be potentially blind. But that does not mean that that is part of its nature. It means it's a defect in its existence. If an eye is blind, then it's not in line with its nature, and therefore we need to figure out a way to restore its sight. In the same way, we can't say, well, a computer, because it can become a weapon, that's just part of its nature, and it's totally valid to use it that way. Well, no, because if you use a computer as a weapon, it's going to self-destruct, which seems to indicate that it's not good for your nature. Now, somebody might say, well, how, who are you to say? Well, what are you talking about, Daniel? Why would you say that something that if it has the potential in its nature, then why is it not okay for it to act upon that potential or actualize that potential, bring it into existence? Well, it's pretty simple because moral decisions are supposed to be the things that actually further us into a closer approximation of our purpose or our telos. So when I fill, when I fill up this cup with water, I'm more in line with what it was made for than I would be if I decided to strike, you know, a dog across the snout and break it open. That's not what it's made for, but it could be used that way. And it probably would get damaged in the process. So similarly, if I have a patient and I'm a doctor, my job is to make sure that I restore him to his health. 
right, to a healthy state, a healthy nature. And this is the Hippocratic Oath, that you're not supposed to do harm because harm goes against the nature. And we can self-inflict harm or we can act harm on somebody else. The fact that a human being has the potential to receive harm does not mean that it's morally good to do harm to that human being. So how do we know this? Because we know that what is what the problem is with, with destroying somebody's nature is that you take that person out of existence and now there's no nature, which is just intuitively not good because that's not in line with the nature. If it was in line with the nature, then they would no longer exist anyway. So with the gay marriage thing, when we talk about the nature of marriage, we are talking about a purpose that man has. Now, this is not a necessary purpose that man has to attain, but it is part of his nature, and there's a nature of marriage. And so what you also have, and why this gets very, very confusing very quickly, is because you have primary purpose and secondary purpose, or in the literature you might see uh, uh, absolute purpose or uh, proximate purpose or proximate ends, ultimate ends. So the ultimate end of man is to know God and make him known. I believe that's the Westminster Catechism. But the question of what is the ultimate end of marriage, the fulfillment of the whole thing, would be a man and a woman coming together, having a both having their, their needs, emotional and physical, met that results in a baby. That's a full expression of the marriage. Now, if you take out any of those parts, then you can't, by definition, have a marriage, including if one of the spouses, if say they're both male and female, one's male and one's female, and one of them is infertile, then they are experiencing an, a, a defect in their marriage in the same way that a blind person has a defect in their eye. We don't say that they're evil people because they can't have kids any more than we'd say, ah, you're blind. Eh, I guess uh, I guess you did something really bad in your previous life. It's not a moral judgment, but it's a natural kind of evil that it's not a moral evil. It's a natural evil that resides in the material of the thing. So now we get to the question of, okay, well, why can't you separate out the, the T from the LGB? That's the question I ultimately want to get to. And the reason why is because ultimately when we talk about gay marriage, and I'm not talking about adoption here because I posted this on Twitter and so people got little bit a little bit feisty it got got some of the twitter trolls coming out of their out of their bridges and and one of the things they said once somebody brought up well i can i can adopt someone with my wife and we i will be his dad which is true legally but legally is not the same thing as biologically and what a lot of gay couples are doing is they're going and they're having uh participating in what it can only be described as eugenics where they are participating in selecting a spouse on a app, to use Dave Rubin's words, like Tinder, in which they actually select the, the, the woman who's going to bear his child, and then they're going to take it as their own, and the other dad is going to be his legal father while he is the biological father. Now, in, this, in, in the same sense, <clears throat> they can't pretend like they're both dads any more than the transgender male can pretend he's a woman. So the the issue comes where they are both trying to say that man's nature is malleable, meaning I can change my gender because it's not connected to my biological sex 
and therefore it's not a part of my nature. My nature is completely fluid. The, the gay couple is saying man's nature is such that given enough technology, I can actually replicate what a heterosexual marriage has and I can have the same things. But the whole problem here is that the way you go about obtaining your end matters. I, I could start an orphanage by uh, buying a public school and selling it and then, you know, getting rid of the whole school and then putting my own school there and only letting my kids go and get educated there. Now, it's a good thing for my kids to be educated, but we wouldn't say that that's a good use of or that that action is in line with my nature. So similarly, when we're talking about the natures of things, the issue comes down to are we actually considering it in the objective sense or the essentialist sense? And this is the the best way to do it because anything else is going to imply that they're the essentialist way and therefore they're right and I'm wrong. So just in that, they're implying that, you know, this is how the world works. But there's one other thing I want to bring up on this because it's not like you can be in the most Protestant evangelical country in the history of the world and say that this whole gay marriage debate lies with a, a, a group that at the time was only like 5% and they just came out of nowhere and, and overthrew the culture. Part of this is that the underlying philosophical system, we'll get into this in chapter three, the underlying philosophical systems that Christians adopted was a kind of nominalism, this idea that there are no such thing as natures, really all that matters is what God said in his word, and therefore we're good. What they don't realize is that you can get by with nominalism by supplementing your nominalism with tradition from an essentialist view. So that's what they did. You had essentialists back in the day who held that, yeah, of course, marriage is between a man and a woman, because how could you deny a man and a woman? What are you doing? Like, you have this whole idea that it was undeniable that this was the case. So when you came to the text, you may not have realized it, but you were reading into it an essentialist view. Well, now the underlying philosophical currents have changed, and what do we see? We see people starting to read into the text things like a radical skepticism, similar to that of Descartes or Rousseau, that this idea, which we'll find in chapter three, that what matters is what you feel deep down inside about what the Bible is saying. That might be a Rousseauian context, or the fact that it's not your fault uh, that you had to steal in order to feed for your family. That's not a moral uh, failure on your part. It's the society putting you in, po in a position that forces you to have to be evil. All of these things are underlying philosophical currents that are competing with each other, and when we decide to eject the philosophical systems that we've inherited, or at least be self-aware of the philosophical system we have, then we're going to necessarily adopt the one that our culture is currently flirting with at the time. So for us, that appears to be nominalism, because what it would say is that basically marriage is whatever you want to define it as. It doesn't have a nature. And the evangelical crowd were the ones who did this first. They're the ones who said, there's no difference, for example, and I'm, I'm probably going to get, this is our first YouTube video, Lindsay, we're probably going to get in trouble. Christians are going to start hating us already. So, the evangelical Protestants said that there was basically no difference between a marriage between two millennials 
who decided not to have kids, and a Catholic who decided to have eight. This then mutated, or who knows what the timeline actually was, but a good example of this was the elevation of marriages to handicapped individuals. Now, I'm not saying that people should not have gone and married somebody who was in a tragic car accident and therefore couldn't have kids. That's not what I'm saying. But that marriage is not, by definition, a complete marriage. That's what makes it beautiful to actually marry that person despite the fact that you can't have kids is because it's a sacrificial act. But you can't say it's the same as a marriage where your wife is going to be able to give you kids and you're going to be able to be a dad and you're going to be able to live into this purpose that God has ordained from the beginning of time if they're the same. It's not an act of valor if you decide to marry that person on the moral context, because at the end of the day, the marriages are different on a metaphysical level. So the elevation of marriages that have definitionally a, uh, what would you say, a, a natural defect that they have to overcome with love, to put that at the same level of a natural marriage with kids was to basically imply that marriage is not about kids, it's about who you love. And that is a prerequisite for a good and healthy marriage, but it's not sufficient for an actual marriage. So this is a logical thing that you'll find all the time, necessary and sufficient. It is necessary that you have a man and a woman to have a healthy marriage, but that alone will not get you a healthy marriage. This is a, what we call abusive marriages, right? If it was necessary, all you had to have was a man and a woman to have a full and beautiful marriage, then all you would have to do is have a man and a woman, they'd get married, and then we'd never have any abuse. But that obviously doesn't happen. So it's necessary, but it's not sufficient. In the same way, we can say that uh, something is sufficient, but it's not necessary. For example, the Bible is sufficient to help you have a healthy marriage. But it's not necessary, because we can meet atheists and Muslims and others who have what we would say, from a natural perspective, they have a healthy respect for each other. They love each other. They clearly want to will the good of each other. This is clearly something that the Bible is not necessary for a healthy marriage, but it is sufficient to make you a healthy marriage. So that is how we have to think about these things. And there's a whole bunch. If you have your own kind of use of necessary and sufficient causality, throw it in the comments below. But they elevated these marriages to the top. And I can remember watching a Focus on the Family, I think it was Focus on the Family clip of a, of a couple who had a tragic accident and they got married and they put it out there like this was just as good as everybody else's marriage. And if you have a love is love framework, then yeah, it is. But we understand that God's plan for marriage was that eventually it would result in children. And so we have to call it what it is because that's how we got into this, this issue in the first place because now you've got a whole group of people coming in and saying, well, I can actually say what marriage is now too because you guys are doing it as well. If you get an exception for marrying somebody in a wheelchair, well, then why can't I have a marriage with my partner? Because after all, there's no distinction. He can't have kids and you can't have kids. What's the difference here? 
we love each other. You love each other. Why can't we do this? And you can see we could make metaphysical arguments for it. But if you don't have those, then what are you going to do? If you don't have the what's the purpose of man, what's the nature of man, what's the nature of marriage discussion, then you can't have it. You, you can't win that argument against the LGBT crowd. And therefore, the LGBT crowd is going to say, well, the nature of a man is to be a man. That's why you can cut out the T on LGBT, which was trending on Twitter the other day. So hopefully that makes a lot of sense, because ultimately what we're talking about is a group of people that think that in Christians and across the board, a culture that believes that there's no such thing as an objective reality, that natures are whatever you prefer them to be. And this is basically the gist of chapter two. So we are going to move on. We get into a whole bunch of other stuff, but essentially the end of this chapter is to say that your emotions determine your moral outlook, and this leads us into chapter three with Rousseau. And this is a really important chapter, and we're going to go, we're going to blow through it though. I've got a bunch of quotes, but I'm going to go through it because it's getting late and my wife has to edit this, my producer, I mean. A producer has to edit this thing when we get done. So in this chapter, what you find is, again, the thing that's good about this book is the fact that you can not just apply it to the sexual revolution. You can apply this to your church. You can see the underlying philosophical systems in your church. What I want to tell you about here is give you some inside baseball on the seminary life and some of the education that was going on there which I went to a great seminary, Southern Evangelical Seminary, highly recommend. I don't get a kickback for that, but hey, if you guys want to work something out, let me know. The, the part of this chapter is going to be about a guy named Jean-Jacques Rousseau, and what he is famous for, including in the Catholic tradition, is the reformation of ethics. And what he does is he essentially says, man by nature is good, and a lot of you guys probably know this already, but for those that don't know, I know I've got a lot of people reading this book with me that don't necessarily know the historical and philosophical background. So for you guys, this is this is what I'm going to dive into. But further down, we're going to get into how Rousseau is embedded in much of popular Christian culture at the seminary level all the way down. So Rousseau basically says that you're a product of your society, that you're a you're not inherently evil. You're evil because your society made you evil. So you can see where this is going with systemic racism, with oppression versus oppressor, oppressor opp oppressed class discussions. The systemic problems argument is Rousseau. When we get to, and I got to get to my notes here. When we get to the, the discussion of Rousseau, what happens is he is going to, unlike Augustine, and, and Truman has a great discussion, by the way, on Rousseau and Augustine in this chapter. I highly recommend you dive deep into that. He also has some good footnotes. But he kind of calls out Rousseau in a very tactful way that Rousseau is like, I'm doing this for the first time ever. No one else has done this before me. And it's pretty clear that he's riffing off of Augustine. Uh, he even, I think, has a book called Confessions in the footnote. which I don't see it here, but I'm not a Rousseau scholar. So, oh, yes, he does. Here we go. Page 108, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, Confessions, edited by Patrick Coleman, 
Angela Scholar, Oxford University Press, 2000. There you go. So he has this book called Confessions. And he acts like this is, you know, his own little thing. And Truman says, my interest in him here is specifically in the role of his, that his views of psychology and culture play in the, his understanding of what it means to be human and how it shapes his conceptualization of the relationship between the individual and society. In other words, how did Rousseau impact the way that we decide to live and breathe together? That's essentially what that means. Now, we're going to get into this idea of society impacting you and causing you to be evil. Whereas Augustine is going to say, no, you're born a sinner and the system provides you with opportunities to do evil more than it should. That's Truman's gist. Whereas Rousseau is going to say, no, it's not your fault, honey. It's not your fault. It's the system. You're just a victim of the system. And it sounds like a good rap song, you know, victim of the system. Just kidding. Anyway, so on page 109, we have this quote, and it, this might make you think of Aladdin. Uh, he says, First, Rousseau emphasizes that the motivation for crime was not greed, but only to oblige the person who was making me do it. Thus, the act was driven not by some inward impulse that was intrinsically sinful, but by a good desire that led him to perform a sinful act. So you can think of Aladdin, the Disney movie, you know, riff rat, street rat, I don't buy that. If only they'd look closer. They wouldn't see a poor, they would see a poor boy, you know, not a thief, no siree or whatever. And Abu is sitting there crying in the corner. So you've got this Rousseauian theme throughout a lot of these things in the Disney movies and culture, but you also have it in theology. And I've got a quote here from this big old paperweight, which I'm not saying that he was a bad, he's got some good stuff in here, but he's just a great example because he's a theologian that we read in seminary. Um, and again, that's not me digging at my seminary because you should read broadly in seminary. We had a whole class on atheism. We didn't read a single Christian book in it. So there you go, getting a nice diverse education there at a seminary. But this guy held to a, what I would say, a Rousseauian belief. And if we look at his quote here on page 671, he says, how many Americans, for example, squandering their resources on luxuries and demanding grain-fed beef, realize how many persons are being denied an adequate diet as a result? It should be clear by now that we are conditioned and severely limited by social realities. The particular social situation in which we involuntarily find ourselves, including the political and economic system, our intellectual and family background, even the geographical location in which we were born, inevitably contributes to evil conditions and in some instances makes sin unavoidable. Now, the next sentence is weird. Sin is an element of the present social structure from which the individual cannot escape. So he says in that, that very last quote that sin is not something that you can escape, but he has a qualifier in the previous sentence that says inevitably contributes to evil conditions and in some instances makes sin unavoidable. In some, but then the next sentence he says it is unavoidable. So just a little bit sloppy there. you know. And again, I'm not trying to rip on this guy. He's way smarter than I am. I'm just trying to use him as an example to show that this clearly was woven throughout our culture because this is a seminary text. And you've got Rousseau weaved into the content there, that it's 
you are necessarily going to be sinful just by virtue of the society in which you participate, not because you're born sinful, but because you can't, even if you weren't born sinful, you'd still be sinful is the implication there. Because earlier on, Erickson does say, you know, you are born sinful. This is what the Bible says. But then this is, this is how it gets worked in. There's a, there is a philosophical assumption here in which he is saying this is inevitable. Now, uh, at the end of the day, we, we still have to understand that these ideologies are at play. So you're going to have these philosophical waters that you're swimming in. And one of the things I wanted to bring up here was that you're not going to be able to get away from these things. That philosophy is necessarily a part of your system. But before we go into that, I want to just to kind of criticize Rousseau a little bit or, or throw a little bit of a critique. Let's read this quote from Alexis de Tocqueville, which just for the sake of discussion is basically super prophetic. So that's the only reason why I put it in here is because, you know, it's, it's incredibly prophetic, but also it's a good example of how we should think about Rousseau. So he's going to talk about Russia and America here. This is 1836 when he writes this, or 1831, when America is just starting to come onto the map, onto the scene as a world power uh, amongst the world. And the question I have for you as I read this, from a Rousseauian perspective, are we supposed to actually in, actually interpret these two as equal and evil? So let's let's read this quote real quick. Today, two great nations of the earth seem to be advancing toward the same destination from different starting points, the Russians and the Anglo-Americans. Both have grown, un grown unobserved, and while men's attention has been preoccupied elsewhere, they have climbed up into the leading rank of nations, and the world has learned of both their birth and their greatness at almost the same moment. Americans struggle against obstacles placed there by nature. Russians are in conflict with men. The Americans fight the wilderness and barbarity. The Russians, civilization with all its weaponry. Thus, American victories are achieved with the plowshare, Russia's with the sword. To achieve their aim, the former, which is America, rely upon self... I can't read that because there's a block. It's blocking it. Self uh, something. Self-interest, self I think. And allow... Well, well, yeah, self-interest. Self and allow free scope to the unguided strength and common sense of individuals. The Russians focus the whole power of society upon a single man. The Americans deploy freedom as their main mode of action. The Russians, slavish obedience. Their point of departure is different. Their paths are diverse, but each of them seems destined by some secret providential design to hold in their hands the fate of half the world at some date in the future. Lexis de Tocqueville, Democracy in America, 1831. I'm pretty sure that's 1831. By the way, that's this book right here. So... There, and if you're watching this on YouTube, there were definitely a couple typos in there. Just look over those. We rushed it. Just give us a breather, okay? It's the first video. If you've made it this far, God bless you. So the point I'm trying to make here is that if you just take a societal look, societies aren't all equal. And so in order for Rousseau's view to work, you either have to do away with society or you have to try and create the utopia. But that doesn't get at the problem. The problem is actually man. Man has evil in his heart from the beginning. And this is where revelation does have to come in. Because we can see the effects of sin, but we can't with certainty deduce that it's because somewhere down the line, man 
decided to disobey God. We just know that because the Bible tells us. Etienne Gilson, in his book, God and Philosophy, says that revelation is a shortcut to reason. So we shouldn't look at the Bible as being intellectually lazy, because a lot of times, while we could come up with all these fancy arguments and stuff, and if somebody could actually demonstrate that man had at some point, philosophically, just by reason alone, had actually disobeyed God, and that's why he was sinful, then great. I don't think you can do it. But if you could, it'd take you a long time and be a lot of philosophical development. Or you can just read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and you've got the whole nine yards. So when we get into this discussion about philosophy and and the Rousseauian idea, part of the reason why Erickson has this is because he may or may not, maybe he does know Rousseau, maybe he doesn't, I don't know. But in the culture right now, for sure, there is an anti-intellectualism within the church that has led them to adopt whatever the philosophical flavor is of the year, whatever that might be, whether that's nominalism, whether that's essentialism, whether that's you know legalism or whatever, which would be more of a, a behavioral pattern outside after, that's coming out of a philosophical system. The point in this section of, of the book is that you cannot get away from the fact that you have some sort of philosophical understanding. Because when you get the footnotes, you're going to see that other names show up, like David Hume and Hegel and others. And so if you look at the timeline, you've got Rene Descartes, which the Lexus de Tocqueville says, Americans are the most Cartesian of any society, and yet they don't read any of his writings. Well, how did they get Cartesianism if they never read it? Well, it's because the philosophical systems of the previous generation are passed down to the next generation in behavior. And so you're, you're going to have, this isn't the same thing as a worldview, okay? This isn't just like, you know, your cultural outlook on life. This is your outlook on existence itself, the nature of man, the nature of reality. These things are not merely your culture. They are a understanding of reality at the deepest level you can possibly comprehend. And that's philosophy. And so Descartes had a view on that. Rousseau has a view on that. Hegel has a view on that. And as we see later on, Truman has a view on that. You can't get away from philosophy. You will either go into the store of philosophical ideas and you will buy the ideas that you want, or you will take whatever the philosophy is of the day for free. And, you know, it's kind of like free advice. Take it for what it's worth. So Descartes starts in 1596 to 1650. Then Rousseau comes in at 1712 to 1778. And David Hume is 1711 to 1776. Rousseau calls into question the idea of ethics based on what Truman has said. I haven't read any Rousseau, full disclosure. I'm just going off of what Truman says here. And David Hume questioned the causality. Can we actually know cause and effect relationships? And he basically says no and has a radical skepticism as well. And then Hegel comes in, and then after, and Hegel basically says, well, we have this tension between reality, between the spirit, the immaterial, and the material, and they're constantly in conflict with each other. And after him comes Feuerbach, and then from there, which is a materialist reading of the scripture based on what Koppelson says in History of Philosophy, and then you have Karl Marx. And Marx and Engels take this, and they move through with this light dusting of Christianity, even though they didn't like it at all. 
its influences are very clear uh, when you read Copleston's History of Philosophy. So my point in all of this is that when you actually decide to take a hard look at your philosophical beliefs, you will start to realize how much of the Bible you've been reading that into. And part of this chapter, one of the things that we start to realize is that we have come to a place with the Rousseauian idea that essentially, just like the, the uh, LGBT person says, I feel this way, therefore this is how I ought to live, Christians have been doing the same thing. They have been basically adopting this view that we are ultimately guided by our feelings, and that's the way the Holy Spirit leads us. That's just the way it is. My kids came back from a soccer match tonight, and it was basically like, you know, this all this contradictory stuff, like, you know what's great? You've got the Holy Spirit in you, and you, you're going to feel him inside of you. And then don't forget to read the Bible, and don't forget to be around Christians, and don't forget to be, you know, memorizing Bible verses and stuff even though the verse that you just quoted said, but you're going to have the Holy Spirit, so you won't need it. So there's this constant contradiction throughout the whole thing because we don't understand how these things exist in tension, and we feel like, well, we got to give every part of the, of the description of Revelation its due, or else we're going to screw up some little kid. He's going to go off and be an atheist because we messed up. So on page 123, Truman is going to be describing this idea of love of self as it relates to man in his natural state of pure innocence. And then he's going to go in and he's going to say, but society ultimately perverts the uh, self-love, which again, and actually I'm going to point this out for you because it's really helpful for me. I had to look this up because I was like, is Truman like, actually, does he have a typo here? Like what's going on? It's uh, when he defines this. Where are you? Here we go. It's on 116. Just the, the distinction between self-love, and I'm going to butcher this French, but it's amour de soi-même and amour propre. And my wife is laughing at me because she has minor in French. I don't even have to look at her face. I can already feel her smile and the heat from it. So she's mocking me with her spirit. I can feel it. I can feel the ethical dilemma that I'm in right now. It's not, it's not something I've reasoned to. It's just deep down inside of me to the left of my kidney. So what, what Rousseau is saying here is that basically you have the self-love. And so when Truman talks about this, just as an aside, you have the self-love that's pure and, and, and normal, and then you have a more proper but when we get into uh, later on, there is a uh, footnote on page 123. Inflamed is what one of the uh, Rousseau scholars uses to describe inflamed amour propre. And uh, man, Jim's going to kill me. Bible translator friend, he's going to rip me to new one on Sunday. Yes. No, it's, it's not. It's self-love. That's how it's defined. It's amour propre. There you go. Got the correct. I'm, it's right in the book. Did you do the readings? I don't have a supportive wife here, people. Call her out. Guilt tripper. Make sure she knows that in order to live the intellectual life, she's got to be right there with her husband. So anyway, on page 123, footnote 30, inflamed is dense term to describe a more proper, 
What? Prop? Prop? In its negative form, it is an adjective he uses to make it clear that, in his view, amour prop in itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Rather, it is a perversion that is the problem for Dent and Rousseau. So, or for Rousseau. So this idea that self-love is actually a good thing and society perverts it and makes you steal stuff because that's what you need. And so unlike uh, Augustine and the stream of Christian thought, Rousseau does not regard human beings as innately perverted. So therefore, you don't need a savior. You just need a utopian society. Now, the way that this works its way in, not so much on the sexual revolution side, although I think this is relevant to it, but what I think is really interesting about this book is the way that he is... I don't know if he's intentionally doing this, and, and hopefully we can get him on the podcast. Um, we're working on doing that right now. So if you know him, send him an email saying, hey, you should go on that podcast. They're talking about your book. But the, the thing that is really interesting about Truman in this book is that he is simultaneously dealing with the sexual revolution, but at the same time, you can see the parallels in mainstream Christianity as well. So most Christians, especially Christian women, will know about a book called The Jesus Calling. And this was all about the idea of being able to listen to Jesus talk to you. And of course, Jesus doesn't talk audibly. So they have to figure out somewhere to put this voice of Jesus. And where they put it is in the conscience, inside, you know, listen to your inner voice kind of a thing. Now, I don't know that she uses those exact terms, but that is in function how it works. And this was a big deal when I was in college. This was a big deal amongst parents that were, you know, mentoring kids throughout their, their Christian development, and it's no fault to them. Bad Christian devotions come through all the time. We outgrow them. We use them for what they were worth, and then we cast them to the side because, you know, we grew in our faith. So it's not a dig at Jesus Calling. It's been used by some people, and it's really changed their lives. But the fact that it is deeply Rousseauian is evident by this quote. For Rousseau, the individual is at best— he is most truly himself, as he should be, when he acts in accordance with his nature. This is a deep principle of Rousseau's understanding of authentic personhood and of ethics. And conscience is the internal, pristine, and for Rousseau, God-given voice that points each one in this direction. And this is how Rousseau gets away with not having moral relativism. Truman's going to go into that. Like a lot of people will say, and I, I thought this was interesting too, because for me, I've always associated Rousseau with moral relativism. And it's important for us as thinkers to understand that just because there is a natural progression to bad ideas like moral relativism, it doesn't mean that the original thinker intended it to be that way any more than a, a Bible-believing Christian intends to be legalistic. Just because there are there is the potential for that mutation in the idea or in the philosophical system or the theological system. It does not mean that it is intended to be there. And so a lot of times thinkers are trying to build in safeguards because they understand that moral relativism is a bad thing and we can't have that. So Rousseau grounds this idea in conscience and that's where he tries to say, no, it's because there is an objective nature of man and it's this God-given voice based on the innocence of man. So in conclusion, again, we as Christians cannot get away from the fact that the basis of your biblical interpretation, whatever you think the Bible says, is built on a philosophical system, either assumed or intentionally adopted. 
And the best book for those who want to see this actually worked out in practice is a counterpoint series by Zondervan, Three Views of the Kingdom. It doesn't seem like it should be, but when you get to the end of that book, what you have is you have a, a, a th three professors, three academics debating about the nature of the kingdom, the millennial kingdom in Revelation. And when you get to that final chapter, they're all going at each other and they're all quoting their verses and they're using their Greek like Jedis, you know, lightsabers everywhere, force pushes, you know, just constant epic theological battle with ink. And then it's almost like they run out of biblical bullets and they have to now reluctantly go to the philosophical debate of, well, why do you think that the kingdom is metaphorical? What do you think the nature of metaphor is? And they get into this concept called pre-understanding. And they start debating about the pre-understanding that each of them has, which is completely external to the text. Because it's pre-understanding. Prior to getting to the text. So there's this incredible back and forth that even though none of them may want to admit it, there is this dependence on philosophy in the same way that a husband is dependent on his wife and a wife dependent on her husband. It's a mutual dependency. It's not that one's better than the other. It's that they have different roles to play. And when you remove one, it's less than ideal. doesn't mean that you can't have a single mom taking care of kids and raising them right, but it's better for there to be a full house with a father and a mother. Same thing with your theology. It's better to have the scripture alongside a philosophical belief that you've adopted. And what I will close with is this. It's necessarily realism. You have to start with realism. Now, you can pick whatever you want, but it's ultimately going to come back to realism. Why? Because the Bible assumes you have a realist view of the world. It believes that you are a being that can see, taste, touch, smell, and come to conclusions in your mind, your spiritual power, of abstracting from the world something immaterial from the material. You can look at, at the, the Son of God on the cross and draw the conclusion, surely this man was the Son of God. Even though, right in front of you, prior to the Gospels being written, is another guy who came along and said he was the Son of God and he was going to free the Jews. But this one's different. And so you can see this, and you can see this. This could be brought on by the Holy Spirit, bringing the veil down, whatever you want to call it. There's a lot of different ways, because God's free, to do what he wants. But when we're talking generally about the world, when it says male and female, they created them, he created them. It is assuming that you know what a man and a woman is. The Bible is not a dictionary. It is a, a narrative, it's poetry, and it's revelation about who God is and what man's ultimate purpose is. And so the proper philosophical system that I would argue, and I'm going to get a ton of flack for this of anybody who watches it to this point, and again, props to you if you made it this far. You deserve a pen. But... The Bible assumes that this is the view, that you can know the world and that you already have had experiences with the world prior to you even getting there. Who taught you to read? It was a teacher. 
Well, then you knew what a teacher was before you ever picked up a Bible. And so the Bible affirms via assumption your material experiences with the world. And so the proper philosophical system, you ready for it? Here it is. It's realism, not with doubt, but with wonder. It's a realism that doesn't operate primarily from doubt, but from wonder. That the world is knowable, but there's an adventure you're supposed to be on that you may not know what it is, but you know it's out there somewhere and you're supposed to go do it. Maybe it's you're supposed to go build rockets like Elon Musk. Maybe you're supposed to be a professor. Maybe you're supposed to live an intellectual life and write your ideas down for the next generation to come down. That comes down. What you can't do is say, well, I can't know the reality right in front of me, and therefore I have no responsibility. What you can say is, I can't know all of reality, but I know enough to wonder, where am I supposed to go next? So this is the end of Book Club. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope you come back for more. Make sure you smash that like button, subscribe, and keep thinking.